Turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. We're going to be in chapter 10 this morning. <clears throat> We're going to be covering a passage that probably every single person in this room is somewhat familiar with. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, if you've been raised in the church as I have, you have heard this story, this parable, expounded upon many times. And frankly, if you've been raised watching CNN, you have heard this story expounded upon many times. <laughs> uh, just about this time last year, Nancy Pelosi had actually quoted this very parable to try to stir up compassion for the dreamers, the children of illegal immigrants. Uh, another uh, prominent politician recently said that the... Uh, Building a wall along our southern border wouldn't be the way of the Good Samaritan. And if you just go online, just a quick Google search, you will find hundreds, if not thousands, of stories of people doing good to strangers in the name of the Good Samaritan and uh, the good works that they did. So the question we're going to raise this morning is what is the biblical understanding of good works? Is, this, is the point of this parable merely to motivate us to take better care of one another? Or perhaps do we miss the point of the parable? What is a parable anyway? It's one of those words you really only use or hear in church, so we don't really think about what it means sometimes. A parable is a fictional narrative that illustrates a real-life point. And... It's important to remember when interpreting any of Jesus' parables, there's typically one main point that the rest of the scripture revolves around and uh, that brings out the truth it's intended to convey. And if you interpret the passage correctly, you can make dozens of applications to your life. Uh, however, if you miss that main point, some of those applications might not be correct. And I'm going to expand upon this a little bit more later, but... Many people miss the main point of this passage and end up walking away with the wrong marching orders for their lives. So, <clears throat> with that being said, let's uh, open up to our text. We're going to begin with probably one of the most important questions you can ask in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the most important question of all, isn't it? It's one you really can't afford to get wrong. <laughs> Where are you going to spend eternity? If you ask that question to various other religions and worldviews, you notice a pattern begin to emerge. If uh, in Buddhism you see uh, you will work for a period of lifetimes to achieve nirvana, their conception of eternal life. In Hinduism, you will work for a period of lifetimes to pay back your karma. In Islam, it's the will of Allah alone, so you have to work for your whole lifetime to please him. And then there's atheism, where you just don't get eternal life, and you have to work really hard to have a good time now. So with the possible exception of atheism there, you see a real clear pattern beginning to emerge, that eternal life is a wage earned from a lifetime of striving to achieve a goal or to be accepted. And you're never really sure how you're doing. None of these other worldviews come with scoreboards to show you how close you are to that goal or that prize at the end. There's very little assurance there. So how does Jesus reply? How does he respond to the question of eternal life? Verse 26 is his answer. He said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I love his answer because essentially what he's saying is, 
well, what does the Bible say? And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that there are all these so-called scholars that talk about how the Bible can't be trusted. There's all kinds of errors in it. Huge swaths of it have just been made up. And, however, there, there really is no debate on this. Jesus has affirmed that the Bible is authoritative, and he even affirms some of the most scoffed-at passages in Scripture as historical truths. He talks about it in the Gospels. He talks about uh, the story of Adam and Eve, Jonah and the great fish, Noah's worldwide flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He cites them all in the Gospels as things that actually happened in history. There's no debate over Scripture's authority or accuracy. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And turning back to our text this morning, when asked this very important question about eternal life, Jesus turns this lawyer's question right back to the scriptures. And that should be an encouragement to all of us of where we can go when we're asking the deep questions of life. But this well-studied lawyer knew exactly where the answer was. Verse 27, he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you shall live. You know, Jesus calls these the two greatest commandments, saying uh, in other places in the Gospels that, uh, that these two commandments summarize the law and the prophets. 613 Levitical commandments, and Jesus can reduce it all the way to two. Let's not miss how revolutionary this is, by the way. I mean, many of us who have been raised in the church kind of know the answer to the question there. But think about it. The, the Jewish people had struggled for a millennia trying to grasp what the essence of the Old Testament was. And then Jesus appears on the scene and reduces the entire law and the prophets down to two sentences that we can all understand. That's pretty revolutionary if you ask me. The, quote, the closest equivalent I could think of in our culture today is if you were to go home tonight, turn on the news, and some brilliant economist has found a way to reduce the entire U.S. tax law down to two sentences and be right. <laughs> That's how monumental this is. <laughs> so let's not skip over those things see, just because it's familiar to us. But just because it's simplified doesn't mean that it's easy or frankly possible. But we'll get to this in a moment, but I really want to look at the lawyer's reaction to Jesus' words first in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He desired to justify himself before Jesus. Now keep in mind in verse 25, he said that he stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now what happens when you test somebody? I mean, what, what's happening there is you think you have the right answer, and you're making sure they do too. That's what happens when you give a test. So this, this lawyer was not interested in some kind of theological dialogue with Jesus, hoping to learn something from him. He was desiring to justify himself or vindicate himself. And his short response here shows he has two devastating misconceptions about the Old Testament law. One, he had thought he had kept the first greatest commandment, I mean, this is hard uh, to love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is actually difficult for us as New Testament Christians to wrap our heads around. Because the commandment to love the Lord our God, I mean, that's our heart's desire, isn't it? 
That's our passion. That's what we want to do. But when put in terms of a commandment, this is actually burdensome. Do I really love the Lord my God more than anything else? All the time? Unwaveringly? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all have idols in our life. We all have things that compete for our heart's desire. And we fall short of this. But predictably, the second mistake this lawyer is making is he thought he could keep the second greatest commandment. And I believe it's through a convenient definition of the word neighbor based on what he said here. You know, one interpretation of that passage, of that phrase, your neighbor, was that your neighbor was actually just your fellow Israelites. So, I don't know exactly what his thinking was, because it's not written explicitly here in Scripture, but we all play word games like that, don't we? And um, Ravi Zacharias actually points out that uh, if you go into a, an airline, you get on an airplane... And uh, you go into, uh, you look at the smoke alarms that they have in there. They will have a little phrase on it that says, do not attempt to tamper with, disable, or destroy this device. Why all that language? Why not just say, don't mess with it? Well, it's because they understand a little bit as we do about human nature, because somebody could come along and say, oh, I wasn't trying to disable it. I was just tampering it with a little bit, and oops, it stopped working. So he, he... because he wasn't, the lawyer was playing the same word, of ga- word games as we find out with the word of God. Ah, yes, Jesus, I love my neighbor, all my fellow Israelites, I'm very nice to. And the reason he's playing these games is he's attempting to justify himself in light of God's law. Rather than seeing how high, he sees how high the calling of the law is and he tries to bring it down to his level, to a level he thinks he can attain. That's dangerous. But can anyone be justified through the keeping of the law? What's the purpose of the law anyway? As you read elsewhere in Scripture, Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Galatians 3 says that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. In other words, the law is there to show us that we are not as good as we think we are so that we will seek forgiveness from God. That's the whole point of what the law was. We need to start thinking of the law more like a stop stop sign. Think of it. A stop sign cannot declare you to be righteous. It It cannot declare you to be a good driver. It can only be used to point out if you're a bad driver. If you run a stop sign, an officer will use that sign as a standard to judge you with. And the law does the same thing. You know, a number of years ago, I was running late to a class in college. I was commuting at the time. And not wanting to be late, I did what, what any good new teenage driver tries to do, and I tried to make up some time. And in that process, uh, of course, inevitably, I find myself seeing those unmistakable Independence Day colors in my rearview mirror. And I'm late to class anyway. Let that be a lesson to some of the youth in this building, by the way. (laughs) So, but the officer comes up, he introduces himself, and 
I just wasn't having it that day. I say, you know, officer, this, this really isn't a problem. I obey most speed limit signs. I stop at most stop signs. There really is no problem here. I'm just kidding. That never happened. <laughs> but why are you guys laughing? Because you know that would be ridiculous of me to do. The logic I'm using is ridiculous. Uh, but what's interesting is that we offer to God that same kind of ridiculous logic that we would never expect a police officer to accept, and we, accept, and we expect God to do it. You see, Jesus sees that this lawyer has this same stop sign theology, thinking that he can justify himself with the, with the law. And Jesus is now going to clarify what the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself actually looks like in practice. And this is the key to understanding what the point of this parable Jesus is about to share is about. So let's look at it together in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite. And when he came to the place, uh, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he said on him set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said to him, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So the lawyer got an answer he wasn't expecting there, didn't he? Can anyone be saved through their good deeds or works of the law? I think Jesus answered that pretty clearly, actually. When we read this parable in context, it's easy to see that this story is corrective by nature. It's designed to show the flaws in this lawyer's belief that he could be saved by the works of the law. And, you know, we covered this earlier. There's a whole pattern in all other kinds of religions and worldviews. They all have this same works-based salvation mentality. Buddhism, it's about works. Islam, it's about works. Hinduism, it's about works. And it turns out even this supposed expert in Old Testament theology believed his works were going to save him. And he just learned that the standard he has to keep is so much higher than he had ever thought it was. And by the way, it's not just about individual actions that Jesus is intending to talk about. It's about living this as a lifestyle. It's the same thing Jesus talked about on the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? How he said, how it, it's not about just the act of murder, it's about the anger we have in our hearts. It's not just about an act of adultery, it's about the lust in our hearts. And if, we, if our life doesn't look like this Samaritan as a lifestyle pattern, then we have fallen short of this commandment. But Jesus doesn't just say this to torture us or to make us feel bad. He says it to make us think. To maybe make us think, maybe 
I've run a few more stop signs than I thought I have. Maybe I'm not as righteous as I thought I was. And my friends, if the answer to the question of eternal life is our works, we're in trouble, if we're honest. So what is the answer to the question this morning? How do we inherit eternal life? Well, the short answer is, it's not our works. It's about Jesus' works. That's the thing that makes Christianity unique amongst all other religions and worldviews. It's grace. God's unearned and unmerited favor. Ephesians 2 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. No other religion or worldview offers grace, by the way. You can, you can study it for decades. You will see fa- some that might offer mercy, which is not giving you the punishment you deserve. But you will not find grace, which is where you are given blessing upon blessing that you didn't earn, then that you couldn't earn. It is unique to the Christian worldview. It's that Jesus knew you couldn't pay the ransom price for our sins. So he paid the price for us on the cross. And so that taking the penalty we deserve to pay. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And now all who draw near to God, and now all of us who believe can draw near to God in fellowship. As the sins that separated us from God have been removed from us so far as the east is from the west, as Psalm 103 so beautifully words it. And we enjoy this privilege now, not because of our works, but because of the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's his works that we trust in and not our own. That's why a great acrostic for the word grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. I just heard that recently. I like it. God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, if you've heard this passage taught, as I have, to teach about the goodness of man towards one another, you've probably missed one of the most important parts of this passage. If, because the, the love that Jesus is modeling in the story of the Good Samaritan is the same story of the love that Jesus has for us. If you're missing Jesus, you're missing the point. That's a fundamental truth about any Bible study from, from, from the pulpit or from our own Uh, personal Bible studies. If you're missing Jesus, you're missing the point. Never leave a Bible passage until you've seen Jesus in it. Let's look at this parable again through that lens. We were the man left for dead on the side of the road, already dead in our sins and helpless to save ourselves. Religious people were of no means to help and they just kind of passed by. We could say a lot about that, but we have to move forward. But Jesus saw us and had compassion on us. He loved us so much, he picked us up and paid the price to save us, not merely from physical wounds, but from our sins, paying the price not just with mere money, but through the cross. This parable doesn't reflect our goodness, it reflects the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I don't naturally love people like this, but Jesus does and modeled it for us on the cross. In short, I can't love my neighbor as myself. I have no conception of what this looks like unto myself. 
But as a follower of Jesus Christ, I now know what this kind of love looks like. Because Jesus has loved me, gave himself up for me, when I see my neighbor in need, I have an idea of what to do because of what Jesus has already done for me. And this spills over to every area of my life, by the way. When my marriage has challenges, I can look to Jesus to know how I should love my wife and reconcile with her. As I'm figuring out this whole parenting thing with my kids, you know, I can look to Jesus to be my model of love, grace, discipline, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Because what do you know it? Jesus has already done all those things to me. He's our example. The answer really is that simple, church. Look to Jesus. This is the key to understanding what our role of works is as believers in Christ. Because having already been saved by grace, we look to Jesus and all that he has done for us, and we desire to honor him with how we live our lives in the present. You see, there's a difference between what the Bible calls salvation and what the Bible calls sanctification. You see, salvation is a one-time event that happens the moment you place your trust in Jesus Christ. The minute that you believe in him and ask for forgiveness, you are saved. You have, a, you have salvation. It happened in one moment, and it has ramifications that last for eternity. But sanctification is a process that begins the moment you are saved and lasts right up until we meet Jesus face to face. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus every day, letting the Holy Spirit have his influence in us. It's what we read about in Romans 12 too, where he says, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we don't do good works to be saved, but because we are saved, over time God makes us more like him. That's what sanctification is about. And that's the role that our works play. It's part of our sanctification process, becoming more like him, not the salvation event which has already happened. But where do I find the strength to do this? I mean, loving others like Jesus did sounds burdensome. It sounds exhausting, if we're honest. Where does our power come from to do this? Well, imagine for a second I asked you to give away $1 million. Now, if you're like me, that's an impossible task. I can't give away what I don't have. <laughs> and I'd imagine that's probably a difficult, if not impossible, task for probably most people in this room. But... So that would be a pretty difficult task. It would be pretty burdensome. It would be, we'd feel pretty depressed about this task. But now imagine for a minute you work for a very wealthy businessman. And he approaches you one day after, after work and says, you know, John, Mike, Susie, whoever you are, I want you to give away one million of my dollars. I want you to give away my million dollars. Everything just changed now, didn't it? It's, uh, in fact, it's not only is the assignment now possible, it just became fun. <laughs> because I'm no longer focused on the sacrifice that I have to bring to the table. I can just give it away. I'm not focused on my sacrifice. I can now just get excited about the power I have to make a difference because the ability to do so doesn't come from me. 
The giving comes from the businessman through me unto others. And that's the kind of mentality we need to start having as Christians with our relationship with God. Because that's how it works. It's, it's, uh, that, I'm not giving away my resources when I love and I serve others. I'm giving away His. I'm getting the power, the resources from God that pass through me, and now I serve others with it. And God is going to provide for us for this task. See, when we, as Christians, loving and serving others is no longer a burden. It's a blessing. Because God has provided all that we need to do it if we look to Jesus. Now, I say that because, you know, political marching orders and humanistic philosophy might be enough to guilt someone into being nice for a time. But it's not enough to change a person the way this Samaritan has so clearly been affected by his relationship with God. And that's the problem with a lot of churches today, unfortunately. You know, you could walk into most churches, many churches on a given Sunday, and you're going to see a nice man up in the front wearing a nice robe or a nice suit or nice button-up, telling the nice people in the pews to be nicer to each other. And that's, what the, that's the marching orders for the day, for the week. I'm not going to tell you guys to do that. You see, because there's no power in that. Enough preachers and political commentators have tried to use this passage to guilt people into this be-nicer approach. But that won't produce lasting fruit because that doesn't address the problem in my heart. That's why David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's because David knew that right actions come from a right heart, not the other way around. Much of that is putting the cart before the horse. So, as we bring this home this morning, church, let's remember where our power comes from and love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 7, Whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them. That is the definitive statement on what practical love looks like, by the way. But unlike this lawyer, we don't do it because we think that's what's required to be saved, but because we get to do it. In light of all that Jesus has done for us, we get to love and serve others as a way of glorifying God and in, and in how we live our lives because he showed us how to first. Jesus himself lived as a servant instead of a king. Matthew 10, uh, Mark 10, rather, but the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. Philippians 2, even though he was equal with the Father, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And as we read in the scriptures, every action Jesus takes is being motivated from a love for others. In John 13, he washed the disciples' feet because having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Matthew 20, he was moved with compassion as he touched the eyes of the blind men and they received their sight. The point of this story isn't to make people feel guilty for not giving enough to the poor, not volunteering enough of their time, or anything like that. It's designed to show us that no matter, no amount of doing any of those things is going to earn our way into salvation. It's designed to show us the righteousness of Jesus Christ and how it's by His grace we are saved. 
And no matter how fall, how much we have fallen short of that standard, we can find forgiveness in his name. And to show us that his love changes us, making us more like him out of time, over time. And now the work I do comes from a genuine love for him and a genuine love for others. Not guilt and not obligation. Maybe, maybe you've had a misunderstanding of works this morning, of what we thought the Bible had asked us to be required of us. Thinking you had to strive to attain eternal life like so many other places teach us. And to you I say, enjoy the peace of knowing that it's already paid for by Jesus Christ if you believe in him. See, there's no striving in Jesus. The Bible says, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Maybe you came here thinking you need to serve, to give back to God, as if God has loaned you your salvation like it's some kind of mortgage. To you I say, it's a gift. It's yours now to enjoy and to possess. We can have assurance of that. See, the simple truth is now we get to serve him. Within the walls of the church, and outside, inside as ushers, as greeters, and as uh, worship leaders, and outside in the food pantries, in evangelism, in taking care and visiting the sick and, and the helpless. And as we experience him, we are changed by him, one day at a time, becoming more like this Samaritan, and becoming ultimately more like Christ, whose love is modeled in the Samaritan's life. I and mean, as we love, more, love others more like the way he loves us, that love will genuinely and organically move us to action. Not because we have to, but as an offering of worship to an amazing and awe-inspiring God. Amen.